Well, as we transition into a time of uh, the scriptures, you can open up uh, the Bible, and we will be in Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one at the end of a row near you. If you don't own a Bible, we have some that we would love to give to you out on the Getting Connected area. Jeremy, if you could hit the lights back there, brother, that'd be helpful so people can see their Bible. And as you're turning to Philippians chapter 1, um, I want to just let you know of a couple things that are happening here. One, at uh, TCC we will be having, and you'll see a list of all these things on the back of your bulletin, but one thing is we'll be doing a, a Hope for Raleigh uh, week, which is going to be a fitness and music camp, a construction camp, and a fashion camp uh, for different ages. So, uh, we have uh, five to ten-year-olds will be doing a fitness and music uh, camp, and then middle through high school will be doing uh, construction or fashion, and just really looking forward to that. We need a ton of volunteers, so if you guys are interested in helping, it's the week of June 22nd through the 26th. There'll be a culmination on the 26th, which is a Friday of um, popsicles on the playground kind of thing, where we will have invite all the neighbors to come and to hear from the kids and what they've been uh, learning in song and also um, have presentation of some of the things that they've made, either in the fashion camp or in the construction camp. So really excited about that. This is for neighborhood kids. It's for TCC children. So we want everybody to sign up and to be a part of this so that we can do this all together. This is one aspect of what many times when we give regularly to the church that uh, our monies go to is to help support and serve our city. Uh, once a year, we ask um, for, we remind ourselves of a specific offering that we do called the Loving the City offering. And that Loving the City offering is above and beyond what we give to the church uh, general budget. And it is an offering that is, has as its goals multiple things. One is to support the partners that we are uh, partnering with throughout the year um, by maintaining this facility and hopefully growing into another one. Um, also, 10% of all that is given to this goes to church planting to support international and national church planting, as well as we are hoping to uh, start in the next coming months to grade the field next door to make it ready for um, events, for leagues, or for uh, camps, those kind of things. We've already got uh, some strong interest from some partners that want to do either soccer or other things there on the camp for the on the uh, property for the community. So, what we are doing is for the month of May, we are encouraging you to pray and to. Uh, just ask God what he might be leading you to give above and beyond your regular giving. And you'll see a table out there in the foyer that just reminds you of all the things that uh, these monies will be going to. And here is a, a card that we just ask either you give or you pledge to give. And by the end of the month, we will tally um, how much we have been able to get towards our goal of overall in a calendar year, $90,000. So we're praying that God would bless to do that. And um, in hopes that eventually we'll be able to build a gymnatorium to serve the community, have one service, wouldn't that be fun? And uh, all kinds of other things uh, to, to be a part of loving one another and our city. So you'll be hearing some more about that throughout the month, but wanted to remind you about that, and that's why the table's out there. Let's get to the word in Philippians chapter 1. I will read uh, what we are looking at today, that's verses the end of verse 18 all the way through verse 26 today. And as I, after I read that, I'll pray and we will spend some time together over the Word. Word of God says this. <clears throat> yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labors for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. 
I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in this moment you would instruct us with your word. You would take it and you would change us with it. And so, Father, we pray that you would use your word to be driven deep down into our hearts so that we might be able to say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so, Father, for these moments, we pray for your help. We ask for the coming of your Spirit. Where our body is weak, we pray for strength. Where our mind is weak, we pray for wisdom. Where our heart is weak, we pray for encouragement. That we might built up, be built up to love you. To love one another. And the resounding sound of today would be, God, you have been with us in power. So do that, I ask. Give us joy. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. So in 2006, um, the State General Assembly formed what is known as the Innocence Commission. The Innocence Commission is a group that is fighting to uh, investigate and evaluate those who have already been convicted, yet they are still claiming innocence. And so what they do is they go through a vetting process, but these cases come up before the Innocence Commission, and the Innocence Commission then begins because there's a lot of new information that's out there today. Both you have DNA testing that's available, which wasn't available when many of these crimes were committed, or you have many witnesses that might have testified in certain cases that are maybe nearing death, and as they kind of get towards the end of their life, they begin to get convicted about false testimonies, whatever, and there's an innocence commission that comes to try to see if anybody has been accused wrongly, and so you might have heard in the news many people, several people, who have served 10, 20, some 30 plus years and yet have recently been found innocent of the crime that they were accused of. And I just cannot imagine what it is to be in prison, to be called and treated as a criminal for 10, 20, 30 plus years, and then to be told you're innocent. You're not guilty, and you're free to go. Can you imagine in that moment the sense of not just overwhelmness or euphoria, but the sense of vindication, the sense of like what was said wrongly about me is not true of me, and it's now known. There's this small sliver of justice that kind of cuts through and what is right is actually seen as right. What's interesting when you come into Paul here in Philippians chapter 1, he finds himself still in prison. And what he wants the people of the church of Philippi to know, his readers to know, is that he is convinced no matter what is said about him, no matter what false motives are, are out there kind of preaching Jesus Christ, that it will become clear at one point that Christ is who he says he is. The gospel is what he said it was. And there will be a vindication. There will be what might have been falsely portrayed, what might have been distorted. All rights will be made wrong and it will be crystal clear. 
Paul wants these, this church to know that no matter what is being said about him, no matter what trials are coming while he is in prison, there will come a day when it will be clear what is right and wrong. And so the main idea of today is going to be in the vindication or the justification of the gospel that Christ will be seen for who he is one day. And we want to see this in two ways. One is that Jesus and his people will not be put to shame ultimately. Ultimately. They might be on this earth. They might be shamed. They might, the testimonies might be distorted. But Jesus and his people will not be put to shame. And therefore, the aim of our life and the aim of our death is Christ. We have an aim, a purpose for life and death. So the aim of life and death is Christ. Jesus and his people will not be put to shame. And therefore, because of that certain hope, the aim of our life and death is Christ. So let's look at it. Here, after Pastor Travis did a wonderful job last week in helping us understand verses 12 through 18, we dive into the middle of 18. Let me read verse 18. He says, ultimately coming off the tail end of Jesus Christ being preached, but being preached sometimes out of true and good motives and other times out of poor motives. And Paul is able to say, well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, despite the motive, Jesus is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice in the here and now. He is excited. He is, as Pastor Travis said, when he was squeezed by his imprisonment, what came out was his desire for the gospel to advance. His love for the advancement of the gospel through his trial. So in that, he can still rejoice because the gospel is going forward through his trial. But now, his joy turns future. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. And you see many future tense kind of verbs. You see it at the end of 19. This will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, that I will not be ashamed at all. And Christ will be honored in my body. You see a, a beginning to look forward to something that is not presently happening. And so he has a joy that the gospel is advancing through his trial. But now he comes back to his present imprisonment. And it's in his present imprisonment that more than likely he is getting ready to face some type of trial. He is going to have to defend himself. Because what we see here is that he says... For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation, for my vindication. Now, we need to kind of understand this because his joy is built on the argument of verse 19. And I'm going to rejoice because ultimately this will turn out for my deliverance. We've kind of got to understand what that means. Well, first of all, this phrase will turn out for my deliverance. This exact phrase is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's used in the book of Job, Job 13, 16, Job 13, 16. And in the book of Job, what begins to happen is this, Job is accused by his friends, if you recall the story, that the suffering he is incurring at the present time is because he is godless. He's suffering for his own sin. It's even said in chapters 12 and leading up to this that he is incurring this because he is not just a sinner, but he is affiliating with the godless, and therefore all this suffering is coming upon him. And so what Job then does in Job 13, 16, he says this. This will turn out or be for my salvation, that the godless will not come before him. Or the godless will not come before him. What's this mean? 
he's ultimately saying, it'll be clear one day. It'll be clear who the godless are because the godless will not stand before God in all of his holiness and they will not be with him forever in eternal peace and joy. So he's ultimately saying, at the end of all things, no matter what you say about me, it will be crystal clear what the truth is. Ultimately, all of this suffering will turn out eventually for not just my eternal salvation, that too, not just a sense of present deliverance potentially, but it has more of the understanding of vindication. All the confusion will be swept away. The clouds will dissipate and what is right will be understood in that moment. And he's ultimately saying, it'll be crystal clear, I'm not among the godless. I'm not suffering as one who is godless. So now, transfer that phrase to Philippians chapter one. Salvation or deliverance, this is why it's translated deliverance in uh, certain versions. The word is literally salvation. And it could mean temporal rescue, it could mean eternal salvation, but it's translated deliverance because there's this, there's this sense of the deliverance from the accusation. It is, it is a declaration of vindication. One day the Innocence Commission will come, so to speak, and what all these wrongs are will be made clear. And so he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He believes that all of these wrongs will be brought to clarity. And so now he's facing trial. There's this sense of, He's in prison. Something is coming where he needs the prayers of the saints to uphold him. And so it says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers, and in the Greek, this, these two phrases are actually connected. And so one seems to be the answer to the prayer. So it would be, I know that through your prayers, the spirit of Jesus Christ will be given to me, would be another way to understand it that I will be able to stand firm and to not run away from Jesus. I will be able to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. I will not be at all ashamed because the gospel one day will be vindicated. It will be made clear, clear. And so he says in verse 20, it's my eager expectation. I am confident of it is another way to say it. And it's my hope that I will not be at all ashamed. I'm not suffering in vain. And ultimately, he has some sense that he will be able to be with the Philippian church later. Because if you see it in uh, verse 25, it says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. What's interesting is he has both the confidence that he's going to somehow encourage the Philippian church while at the same time he says he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. So there's a confidence that he is going to encourage the church of Philippi and yet in the middle he says, I don't know which one should I choose. I'm hard pressed. Am I going to live or am I going to die? So in the midst of him not knowing life or death, he does know this. He does know this, that he will not be at all ashamed and that he will have full courage as he is in imprisonment. And now he just wants Christ to be honored in his body. He wants Christ to be honored in his body. This, this concept of not being ashamed, that, the, that he will not be ashamed, what, what, is, he, what is he getting at? It's this sense that he will not be disappointed that the gospel will be shown to be what it is. Have you ever had an embarrassing moment? Part of me would love to just have some time to talk with you about your most embarrassing moment. But right now is not that time. But I will lay out one of my most embarrassing moments before you. 
And as I was going running with some friends this past weekend, I looked down and I still have a scar from my most embarrassing moment. And here it is. I was dating this girl in college and her and some friends had wanted to go up to the mountains. And so I traveled with my friends and when we got to this restaurant, it was pouring the rain. So me and all of my chivalry, I dropped them off at the front door only to go and to find a parking spot, a parking spot that was really far away. And so I find this parking spot and I pull into the spot and now I'm trying, I mean, monsoon, puddles everywhere, trying to figure out how in the world I get to this restaurant without totally being drenched, like needing to change and all kinds of things. So as I look, I see in the distance a shelter. It's this little overhang. And so, you know, you kind of get up all this courage because the rain is cold and you're going to have to get wet. So all of a sudden, go. And so I take off and I run. And I remember like I was watching a movie that I, all of a sudden I'm in the air. And I look down behind me and there's this huge, bright yellow, I might add, that I totally missed, chain running across the ground that was marking off a place that you shouldn't park, which is why I was parked so far away. So I'm in the middle of the air and I turn around. It's like I could just experience like, oh, that's a chain. Oh, I'm in the air. Oh, splash. And literally... I don't know what had happened to the concrete in this one spot, but my head completely went underwater. It was submerged. And I go under and I come up. I didn't look my best at this moment. There was mud all the way up here, kind of gravel, kind of marks, you know. And so now what I was deceived into thinking once I looked stellar now I clearly didn't look stellar, and so I was trying to figure out what to do. So I went into this makeshift store, and I found some clothing uh, store, and all it was was just like these really bad souvenir places that have like airbrush t-shirts, you know, and so I found this one shirt that was plain, and it looked horrible. It matched very little to nothing. I bought the tired shirt and put it on, and I go and, you know, try to fix myself up be all cool and composed, and I go, and I sit down with everybody, and uh, <laughs> they, they couldn't get past it, you know? It was like, they, I tried to act like nothing happened, and they tried to act like nothing happened, but something happened, and everybody knew it. You didn't have that shirt on earlier, and you looked like a wreck. So, it was embarrassing to me, and all of this was so that, you know, I could just have this relationship, and that this person would be astounded by me, and everything, and, you know, the relationship didn't work out. I got a great bride, and I love her. That was a disappointment. <laughs> the whole thing was a disappointment. The, the meal, the experience, the, the shame that I, it was a disappointment. It was embarrassing. What Paul is saying in this moment is that at the end of all things, he will not be embarrassed. He will not be disappointed. He will not be let down in the least. Because every knee will bow in heaven and earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The gospel that he gave his life for will be proven to be true. And his sacrifice will have been shown to be worth it. He will be vindicated. It will be clear. The gospel and his life according to the gospel will not be put to shame. I will not be ashamed, he says. Instead, I will be of full courage. I will be a full courage. There is this expectation that there will come a point when there will be an authentication stamp. When I traveled overseas for, on mission trips or when I have gone to get my uh, two of my children uh, from Ethiopia, there's always this moment when you have your passport in hand and you're going through customs. It's like, will they really accept me right now? And especially kind of when you're coming back, will they really let me back in? You know, <laughs> it's like, it's, and then when they stamp it, yes, you can go. And when they say all the paperwork's in order, this child can be yours and you can bring him or her home. It's this sense of relief. It's a verification stamp, an authentication stamp that this happened and it's true and it's right and it's good. And that's what's going to happen at the end of all things. 
there is this authentication stamp and the lens that seems fuzzy because of all the clamor and all the distortion and all the people that are making fun or saying there are multiple ways to God or all the people that deny the, the beauty and the legitimacy of the All of that will be made clear. It'll all be made clear. The lens will come into crystal clear focus and all the sacrifice and self-denial and the giving away of the resources for Jesus' name, all the love for others will have not only been worth it, but it'll be verified. It'll be verified that the gospel is true and that Christ is who he says he is. Paul's main point is that Jesus and his people will not be put to shame on that last day. And so Paul is saying your prayers have so helped me. It's filled me with the Spirit. It's going to help me when I defend myself from all this distortion. But it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. So instead, full courage. Do you see what he says there? But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, if we have that confidence, therefore the result is Full courage to make Christ your aim whether you live or die. If you know that the gospel is true, if you know that Christ will have every knee bowed to him and everything will be made crystal clear, then therefore you can have confidence, full courage in the here and now like Paul did to live for Christ or to die for him. And that's where this second main point comes into play it is the aim of life and death is Christ the aim of life and death is Christ and so Paul says here I have full courage now as always that Christ will be honored in my body you've prayed for me the spirit of God has strengthened me and I know that now my trajectory is sure and clear I've been just confirmed that the path I'm on is right and good. And that Christ is going to be honored whether I live or whether I die. You get this sense of he's not exactly sure what's going to happen. Whether by death or life, I am confident that Christ will be honored in my body. It's a beautiful phrase to think on. You know the Medal of Honor is given to individual soldiers who have gone above and beyond what the duty to protect our freedoms and to serve our country require. And when someone goes above and beyond that, they are given this medal. 3,469 people since the 1800s when this medal was created in the Civil War have received the Medal of Honor. And this Medal of Honor is saying that they went above and beyond the call of duty and they have sacrificed. Sometimes their very life, but many times they have sacrificed because, why? Because they honor something greater than their lives. Or they honored freedom, country, fellow soldiers, civilians, whatever it is, they did some heroic act where they honored another and therefore they are bestowed honor. And in the same way, Paul is saying, I want my life, I want my body, whether it's alive or whether it's on the trajectory towards death, I want my body to stand as a medal of honor that says, Christ is worth it. Christ is enough. He is who I am for. I want people to look at my life and not say, wow, how great that person is. But I want them to look at my life and say, I want that Christ. That's what he means when he says, I want Christ to be honored in my body. Whether I live or die. So that he says, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ultimately, the articulation is the aim of life is Christ. But let's take each one of these phrases in verse 21. To live is Christ, and then the second phrase, and to die is gain. 
To live is Christ. Now, we understand here that ultimately he is saying to live is Christ, meaning I want Christ to be known through my life. You see this when it says in verse uh, 22 that if I am to live in the flesh, to live is Christ. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That means if I'm alive, I'll produce fruit that is a blessing to others. The fruit that people will see Jesus. This is how he's talking about fruit. I will bear the fruit of love so that others see Christ. He goes on to say in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh, that is to live, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have, verse 26, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So, if I live, I'm coming to you again. I'm going to do it. Because I'm going to work for the progress and joy of your faith. You see this? And therefore this helps us understand what it means when he says to live is Christ. To say to live is Christ means I want to get Christ to others. I want to produce a fruitful labor of love so that others see Christ. Christ is my aim. We had a, a uh, retreat this past weekend at the beach with, um, we do some leadership development stuff and there's a group of guys, about eight of us, and we were suffering for Jesus at the beach in Oak Island. And so it felt like a, a very kind of Jesus kind of moment. None of us could figure out who Jesus was, but it was a moment because we all walked out onto the beach with our Bibles in hand. You know, it was like one of these, and they're like, okay, someone get in a boat and push out and then teach, you know. Um, <clears throat> but it was just this kind of great moment and we were all out there um, in the sand and reading the word. And as we were reading, we've been studying the book of Galatians together. And it was, the end, it was at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Galatians that Paul, looking upon the Galatian church, he saw how they were trading the freedom that they have in Christ and trying to live by the law as if living by the law was going to save them. And he said this to them. He said, my beloved children, I am in anguish for you like a woman in childbirth, basically for the actions of which you are taking. And it just struck me, meditating on this verse of to live is Christ, it is to be so hurting and broken for the lives of others that you experience some sense of anguish over their distance from Jesus, over the wrong turns or the wrong ways that they go. To live is Christ. It wasn't about Paul at that moment. It wasn't about his security. It was about how broken he was for how they were trading the freedom of the gospel and he wanted them so much to experience freedom in Christ. Paul says here, for to me to live is Christ. It's to bear fruit so that you love Jesus. And this is not just to apply to Paul. This is for any follower of Christ. His readers were meant to be encouraged to apply this to their life and to say, what does it look like for my life to be singularly minded and devoted to Christ? He'll say it later on in chapter 2. It's to consider others more significant than yourself. Many times what grieves you is less about you and more about the pains that you see in others' lives. What does he say here? I am convinced that I want to be with you because I want your faith to grow and your joy to blossom. He's living his life for the joy of another. And friends, that's freeing. 
That's what it means to live as Christ. And before we take too much of a misstep, we must make sure first things are first. Because before living for Christ is doing, producing fruitful labor, being anguished and broken over others, pursuing the progress and joy of the faith of others, before it is doing, it is first knowing Christ and being with Christ and counting the relationship with him as far better than anything else. Don't miss the overarching message of the book. To know Christ is of supreme value, supreme worth. So we've got to ask ourselves, if our destiny is certain, no matter what shame we might incur here, it is certain we will not encounter shame on the last day. Everything will be crystal clear that what we give our lives for is true. The gospel will not be put to shame. If that is true, then we live for Christ. And Paul was really clear. Spouses, you make it your aim not to be right, but to get Jesus before your spouse. Roommates, friends, this is what love is, is to fight with all your might for the joy and progress of somebody else's faith to live as Christ. What is life about? Life is not about money. Life is not about what we can have. It's about Christ. I don't know if anybody stayed up last, last night to watch that fight. I did not because um, I couldn't afford it but that's not the point I'm not spending a hundred dollars on that but it was good I wish I could have watched it but it didn't start to what 11 or something 10 30 something like that do you know the Mayweather and Pacquiao fight I looked up some statistics Mayweather made in 25 seconds of fighting 2.1 million dollars 25 seconds 2.1 million he will make in that one fight, lasted maybe an hour or so, he will make in that one fight more than Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson have made in their careers. Millions and millions. Is that what life's about? It seems awfully tempting at times. Do you know Mayweather owns over a hundred cars? Over a hundred two of which are over $2 million. He owns four Rolls Royces that are over $400,000 a piece. Is that our pursuit? You might say, well, no, that's extravagant. But what do we focus our attentions and affections on? Our homes, our vehicles, our families, our health, our safety, everything gets priority. Friends, let's just make sure we declare them as secondary and that life is about Christ so then we will be filled with His Spirit and we will have wisdom and know how to enjoy all of those secondary things rightly in proportion. Paul is saying to live is Christ. That's what life is about. But he says, I don't know, it's by life or by death. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, that seems like a very confusing phrase to me. Death is gain. If you were to ask me, I would say death is terrible. Death is terrible. This week has been a horrific week in the city of Baltimore. Horrific. For m so many reasons. And so many have opinions about the situation. And now I'm not going to discuss those opinions. But there are two things we must agree with regarding the Baltimore situation. And one is I quote Martin Luther King Jr. 
He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can. Where did he get that? The Apostle Paul in Romans 12. Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's for sure. That's for sure right there. And the second thing that's for sure about this is that death is terrible. We should grieve the loss of Freddie Gray's life. We should grieve the cop who was just recently killed in New York City. We should grieve the Ethiopian Christians who were beheaded by ISIS. We should grieve the 15-year-old's funeral that I went to yesterday because he was playing with a gun that he thought was an antique and yet it was loaded and he died. Death is terrible. And yet Paul here has the audacity to say that death is gain? What is that? Death is terrible because it's an acknowledgement of brokenness in our world. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Therefore, all will die. Death is a terrible, tragic, yet necessary consequence because we are all sinners by nature and by choice. It is our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. It is one second of self-rule that justly demands death, let alone our days, weeks, months, years, lifetimes. Death is tragic, and yet death is just. However, when we look here in Philippians, Paul's not trying to give a comprehensive understanding of death and all of its nuances. But he's saying that there's something most profound about death. And that is, although death is tragic, it is a portal to glory. That for believers, the tragedy of death should be eclipsed by glory. It should be eclipsed by beauty. It's gain. It's Christ. Death is gain because it gets us more of God. It gets us more of God. He's not saying it's gain because he's some advocate of suicide. That he's basically saying, oh, it's gain because you kind of get out of your troubles and you don't have to deal with these earthly causes. That's not what he's saying. He even says, because of love, we don't kill ourselves. We choose life. You see that? Suicide is one of the most selfish things that we can do. And I know that some have contemplated that. It that wouldn't surprise me at all if several in this room have. And I just want you to know, people love you. People care for you. Instead of choosing that way, choose life in Christ for the good of others. But when death comes, and it will come necessarily, you don't need to bring it on. When it comes necessarily, Paul wants us to shape our life to say death is gain. Yes, tragic. Yes, painful. But it's gain. Can we say that? I remember growing up, there was a song, Belinda Carlisle used to sing it. It was old school. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. And ever since then, tons of people sing same songs. Country music's horrible for it. Heaven is here. Let's make heaven here. This is heaven. I'm really disappointed. Heaven is more. And there was a quote from Pastor John Piper that I just found so helpful. I was reminded of it on our community group leaders retreat a couple weeks ago. It says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If we could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you've ever seen and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, 
and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Gain of death is being with Jesus. That's what Paul says here. That's what he says here. I'm hard-pressed to be between the two, verse 23. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Death is gain because when you die, you're with Christ if you're in him. So it's gain. It's gain because he is what we need. I do believe in a new heavens and a new earth where there will be exquisite pleasures forevermore. But Christ is the climax. He is the greatest. He is why heaven is glorious. He's why there is no need for a sun to shine in the sky. His radiance will be sufficient. And so although death is terrible, it is a portal to glory. And Pastor John Piper goes on to say in another article that it's glorious for several reasons. And I just want to have you meditate on them as we go to the Lord's Supper. Death is gain. It's gain. Because the book of Hebrews says, our spirits will be perfected. We won't be sinning any longer. We will, know, we will not be tempted anymore. We will not be dealing with guilt and shame any longer because we will be perfected. And at the moment of death, we will be relieved of pain in the world. You see the story of Lazarus in Luke 16. And it's there where Lazarus is awaiting the final resurrection, but it says he is comforted while the rich man in hell is in agony. And so what we get to experience, those who are in Christ, death is gained because there is comfort for those who are in Christ. At the moment of death, we will be given profound rest for our souls. You'll have rest. The book of Revelation chapter 6 says, we'll be given a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until Christ comes again and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's a glorious resurrection. And it says at the moment of death, we will experience a deep sense of at-homeness. You know what it's like to be away for a while and then to come back home and to kind of lay in your own bed? This kind of at-homeness? Well, that times 10 billion is where we're headed here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 8 and 9. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. We're on a passport here. It's been stamped. We're... Aliens and strangers here. Home is where we're headed. But let's be really clear. Death is a portal to glory and death is gain because we will be with Christ. Although these things are wonderful and glorious, the greatest things is we will be with him. We will be with him. He is wiser and stronger he is more kind than anyone we could ever spend time with on earth. Just let these phrases roll over you. He is bottomlessly interesting. He is limitlessly powerful. He is unendingly loving. And he is inexhaustibly good and gracious. And he is and will be unfailingly present with his people he is the prize so may we look forward to that day when all distortions will be swept away the gospel will be vindicated christ will be substantiated and we will stand in his presence and so until then to live is christ and when we our last days are numbered and as we get there may we die saying death is gain because it gets us more of him. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I praise you, and I just ask that you would remove the fear of death.
and you would give us a confidence like Paul has. A confidence that says, no matter how the trial goes, no matter how the imprisonment goes, I don't know whether it's going to turn out for life or death, but I'm confident of this, that I will be vindicated one day. I will not be put to shame. And if I live, I'm going to live for the joy of another. And if I die, I will be with you. And so, Father, I pray. I pray that you would settle these things in our hearts and we would live for what is best. And we would die with a sense of no fear and confidence because Christ is worth it. And so, Lord, now as we approach the Lord's Supper, I pray. I pray that we would take this time to analyze what are we spending our lives for. I pray that we would take this time to see how much Christ is for us on the cross and therefore how much he will be with us both in life and in death. I pray that you would remove fear where there is fear. You would remove embarrassment where there is embarrassment. You would give confidence where confidence is needed. You would give hope where there is hopelessness. Father, that you would just draw near right now to your people. Moved by your spirit and power, I pray. Thank you. Thank you for your love for us that allows us to have this conversation that we can have freedom in Christ and live in that until we're really free with you face to face. Draw near to us now, I pray in power. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna...